Father in heaven, as we open your word today, we need your spirit. For without your spirit, we shall certainly fail of correctly understanding your word, of applying your word to our life, and having the power to live each day. May your spirit fill us each now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was getting dark. Private, Private Albert Mitchell was getting tired. He was a soldier in the U.S. Army, and he was a cook, so he had to get to bed early in order to uh, be up early and do his duties as a cook. He went to sleep March 10, 1918. When he awoke the next morning, he didn't feel so good. His body was aching. His throat was sore and scratchy. So he got up, and he went to this to the hospital in this very camp, Fort Riley, which was in central Kansas. He went there and he told them, I'm not feeling well. So they checked him out and they said, well, it looks like you have a cold. So they took him and they laid him down in a bed. About the time his head hit the pillow, another lieutenant came in and he said, you know, I'm not feeling so well. And they checked him out and they said, oh, okay, looks like you have the cold too. And they laid him down in a bed. By noon that day, 107 soldiers had the cold, it seemed, and they were all laying down in beds. By noon, that had happened. Within two weeks, 1,127 men had been stricken with this cold, and they were investigating further to see what it was, and in fact, this was an influenza outbreak a local flare-up of this infectious disease was on their hands. Now, infectious diseases have been around for a long time. In fact, one of the first ones that uh, is recorded that we have is called the Plague of Athens. This happened about 430 BC, and there was war between uh, the city-state of Athens and the city-state of Sparta, and the Spartans came and chased all the the farmers of the area into uh, the town of Athens. Now, Athens was a dirty place already, but now with it crowded with hordes of people, it was even dirtier. And so, within a few days, an outbreak happened. We don't know exactly what it was, but the the historian Theosadides, he was an eyewitness, and he said the Athenians died horribly. The sickness beginning with violent heats in the head, followed by furious coughing, bloody vomiting, and finally, severe diarrhea. There was old and young, slaves and free, generals and common soldiers were all slain in this plague. Theosidides says this, the bodies of dying men lay one upon the other, and half-dead creatures reeled about the streets and gathered round all the fountains in their longing for water. By the time the plague finished, three years later, only only one in three Athenians had died. Now, this might inspire you to do some country living. In fact, we have some counsel on this. It says, if in the providence of God we can secure places away from the cities, the Lord would have us do this. There are troublous times before us. If ever this counsel was applicable, it would be now. And yet, this counsel does not mean we abandon the cities. Bye, I'm moving to Montana and we'll see you no longer. In fact, the same author says this in, the, in this letter. The message that I am bidden to bear to our people at this time is work the cities without delay. So if you take these statements in balance, we should live in the country and work in the cities, work for the cities, because the time is short. The Lord has kept this work before us for the last 20 years or more. A little has been done in a few places, but much more might be done. I am carrying a burden day and night because so little is being accomplished to warn the inhabitants of our great centers of population of the judgments that will fall upon the transgressors of God's law. While we should avoid the plagues by living in the country, we are to work for those in the cities and warn them about the judgments that are to come. So the plague of Athens was followed some years later in Rome, the city of Rome. It was called the Antinian Plague. The city was jam-packed with people and animals. There was luxurious villas that the rich lived in. Three-story apartment houses were packed with the poor. 
and the majority of people lived in these. There was a lot of disease there already, but a plague began around uh, AD 166, and it continued for 14 years. At the height of this plague, 2,000 Roman lives a day were being lost. It buried two emperors and, and wiped out the nearby farming communities. Modern scientists aren't sure what caused this, but they are sure of one thing, that it was spread to people from domesticated animals. And then there is the plague of Justinian, which was even worse. It's called the bubonic plague, or the Black Death. So as, as terrible as the other plagues were, this is far worse. It was named after the emperor Justinian, who ruled the eastern part of Ro the Roman Empire, and it began in Constantinople, which is Istanbul, Turkey today. So this happened between AD 542 and, and 547, and it swept across Europe and Africa um, countries. So when they first saw this plague happen, the, um, these individuals would show up with what was called a bubos. A, a, their lymph nodes would swell up the size of a chicken egg on their necks, necks or under their armpits or in their groins, and it was it filled up with some sort of a pus, and if a doctor cut it or it just burst open, it smelled terribly. But sometimes it didn't burst through the skin, it would burst under the skin, and the blood would rupture, and they would, there would be bruising under the skin, and it would look black, therefore, the term the black plague or the black death. So how was the bubonic plague spread? Well, it started with filthiness and nastiness and rats would come into these areas and rats had this disease in them, the Yersinia pestis. It's a rod-shaped bacterium that lives in their, in their guts and, and, there, and also would float around, get into their blood. Fleas would get onto these rats when, the, when they would die from the plague and, and uh, they would be eating the blood from the rats, but when the rats died, their bodies turned cold. Fleas do not like cold weather, as some of you, you prefer warm weather, weather. And so when it would get cold, the fleas would jump off of the dead rats, and they would find whatever was nearby, often it was a human being, and then they would get onto the human being. And they would transfer this bacteria then to the human being, who would then get sick. It was a transmission process from the rat to the flea, to the person. The historian Procipius, he claimed that 10,000 people died a day at the height of this plague. Grave diggers could not even keep up with this, so the emperor Justinian tore off the roofs of towers around the city and just dumped bodies inside. The historian says the whole human race came near to being annihilated. It embraced the entire world and blighted the lives of all men. The epidemic finally ended, obviously, because it ran out of vulnerable victims. But the Black uh, Death, or the plague, was not finished. 800 years later, it resurged with a vengeance in 1342. It began in China and spread um, eastward uh, over the, um, I guess westward, over the trade routes, now, cities at that time were pest holes. They were filthy. France, uh, excuse me, had, uh, Paris was also fairly filthy. In fact, the, the French word merde, it, it uh, means excrement. They had streets with this word in it, merde. There's merde and merousson and rue des Mesdons, which means the street of Pou. Uh, Paris also had a street called rue des Pipi, which means the street that you pee on. Royal palaces were no cleaner than this. Um, they were absolutely filthy. The Louvre, which is the uh, famous art museum with marble floors, did not have any toilet or, or, or outhouse there. So those that were visiting would simply go behind the grand staircase and relieve themselves there. Uh, to, to mask the odors and the stench, the wealthy would wear bags on their head with with um, nice smelling flowers and petals so that they wouldn't have to smell this. The king and everyone else had fleas on their bodies. Even some aristocratic ladies, would, they would hold small dogs. You've seen pictures of them holding small dogs. That was so the fleas would jump from them to the dog so that it would uh, stay off of their bodies. Rats were scurrying everywhere and the black death marched on. It killed one-third of Europe's 80 million inhabitants. 27 million people died 
from the Black Plague. Then we have the Great Plague of London. This also was the Black Plague. This occurred in 1665. More than 7,000 Londoners died each week. In all, it claimed 100,000 lives from England's capital. Now, I'm going to show you a picture of a doctor and the outfit that they would wear during this time of the Black Plague. And these are the doctors that would go to the houses and care for the sick and the dying. They, I warn you, they look a little bit different. And notice, in particular, the face mask. Here it is. Now, they would keep flowers and incense in the beak so that the, the stench of death would not be so overpowering. The Black Plague. But then something else occurred. The Black Plague was dealing with a bacteria, but there was something else invading humans, coming inside of people, transforming them, that was even worse. It's called the devil virus or influenza. The French called it la, la grippe, which means it grips you and won't let go. Now, what's so uh, dangerous about the flu, the influenza, is how it works. Now, there are viruses like polio that are stable. They don't change from one year to the next. If you get immunized against that particular, against polio, 50 years later, that immunization still works. But it's different with the flu. The flu can change. And this is where it's, it, uh, it becomes dangerous. Now, here's an anatomy of a flu virus. You'll see it has these little spiky things coming out. There's the N spike and the H spike. These are used to attach a hold of a cell, and then they cut their way into a cell. And then when they get inside of the cell, they, they open up their contents. You'll see these, the RNA is inside of the cell. There's eight of these, and they release. When they get inside of the cell and they release, there's an important thing that needs to happen in order for it to become, it to change. Let me show you with the next picture. In order for a flu virus to get into a person, it has to come from a bird. All flu viruses, all influenza comes from birds. And so this bird will leave some excrement somewhere and it will end up inside of a pig and it will get inside of a pig's cells and then a, and then a human will be interacting with a pig and their flu, will get inside of a pig and it will mix together and when those two different viruses get inside of the same cell inside of a pig and open up, those little RNA will mix together and they'll make up a new uh, little protein, a new cell, a new virus and that virus is different than the one before. It's got a little bit of both and it keeps changing over time as it gets into new hosts until it's no longer the same form. So if you are immunized against one flu virus, there will, could be another flu virus that breaks out in the future. This is dangerous, and it can be spread from person to person, and some of them transmit very well uh, because of how they are a lung disease, and when you cough, it expunges up to 40,000 viruses into the air, and it can be transmitted very easily when there's a crowd of people. In 1918, there had been a war going for four years called World War I. Our private Albert Mitchell, who had come down with a cold, had caught the influenza virus. This virus was transmitted throughout that host there at Fort Riley. Need was so great in Europe to stop the war that was going with Germany, they pled for Americans, please send your soldiers. And they had to decide, do we send them sick or well? And they said, we had better stop this war, or it doesn't matter if we send them sick at all. So they sent sick soldiers over. Many died on the way, but they brought the flu virus to Europe. Somewhere in war-torn France, we'll never know exactly where or when, type A H1N1 virus shifted and mutated and became a mass murderer of humans. In mid August of 1918, this erupted on three different continents at the different seaports and began to spread abroad. Now, there are other viruses that we have faced and dealt with There's, that have come up in recent history. On May 21, 1997, a three-year-old boy named Lam Hoi Ka was playing with a little yellow chicken at the Hong Kong daycare center 
Six days later, he died of an infection that caused his lungs, his brain, his liver, and his kidneys to fail. This was the H5N1 virus. We had the SARS that erupted in 2002 through 2004. Then we had MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, in 2012. Now this was the, the host animal for the virus was a camel. So somehow a goose was flying over the desert somewhere and it let a little goose droppling down and a camel was snuffling along and got it up into its nostrils and it picked up this virus. And then one of the camel owners was nuzzling or somehow his, his camel and the camel sneezed and got some droplets in his nose and this dangerous virus began to spread. Now where we are today, we, had, we have COVID-19. Now, COVID-19 came from a little different direction. Uh, there was a bat that was a host, and there's some that suspect that the pangolin was the mixing host where the pangolin had the human flu and the, and the, and the bird flu mixed together. Uh, it's not 100% sure, but it seems like that's a possibility. And someone had a pangolin meal, and they got this little virus that has spread around the world. These little viruses are invisible. You can't see them. They're around somewhere, but they come inside of a human and they transform them and tear them apart. I want to talk about a different invisible agent, one that you cannot see, that comes inside of humans but does not destroy them but makes them better, one that comes inside of people and makes them whole and complete, one that changes them instead of tearing apart their lungs and hearts, it gives them a new heart and new lungs and new minds. I want to talk about a, the world's most powerful invisible agent today. Let's look at Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to go to a number of verses today as we study this topic. Revelation 18 and verse 1, the Bible says, After this I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. Some translations say authority. Having great power. And the earth was made bright with his glory. This is an end time scene. At the very end of time, there will be this angel that is this messenger in heaven that has this incredible message and he has great power. And he has great power that makes the earth bright with his glory. What is this message? What is this messenger? What is this power that we see here? Well, let's go back and look at a few other scriptures and see what they have to say about this topic. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28 and verse, beginning in verse 18. Matthew 28 and verse 18. This is the Great Commission. Jesus is with his disciples. These are his last words as he's about to depart. And he tells them this, Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all power. Not a little power, not some power, but all power. Now we just read about a, an angel in Revelation at the end of time that has great power, but Jesus has even more than that. He has all power. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world." This angel that comes from heaven with great power must in some way be connected with what Jesus is saying here. This angel in Revelation must be giving the message and doing the work that Jesus would have them to do because it's connected with all power. Let's go to Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. This is right at, at the end here. Jesus, this is some other counsel that Jesus has given his disciples. Luke 24 and verse 49. Jesus says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Hmm. Jesus is about to leave. And he's told them about a promise of the Father that he is going to send them. The promise of the Father. But stay in the city. Where were they? They were in Jerusalem. But stay in the city, Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus is reminding them of a promise from his Father and they would receive power that would clothe them from on high. 
What is this promise? Well, let's go to John 14, where Jesus talks about the promise of the Father. Now, in John 13, Jesus has told them, I'm going to leave, and where I'm going, you cannot come with me. The disciples were disturbed. They'd been following him all this time. They had been hoping to have a a, a part of his kingdom. They had been hoping to have high positions, and now Jesus is leaving them, and they can't even go. Where is he going? Jesus tells them, don't worry. John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. He tells them that where he is going, he is going to prepare them a place, and then he's going to come back and get them and take them to be with him. Don't worry, he says. But going on to verse 13, excuse me, verse 16, Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he's going to send you another helper. That would not be Jesus, it would be someone else, another helper. Now that word helper in the Greek is parakletos. Parakletos, another comforter, another uh, helper, But we, we find in 1 John 2, verse 1, let me show that scripture to you. Jesus said, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate is parakletos. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Jesus said he's going to send another advocate, someone other than himself, that will be our comforter, that will be our helper, and that will advocate for us. Who is this comforter? Well, let's go on down. Verse 17 says he is the spirit of truth. And then we move on down to verse 26. But the helper, Jesus is referring to the same parakletos, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So the helper then is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is another advocate or a Parakletos. This is another one that Jesus is going to send, and he's going to send in my name, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it says that he's our advocate. Let's, let's look at what it says in Romans 8 about this advocate. Romans 8, verse 26. I got the verse up on the screen. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes in our behalf. He's an intercessor for us. He intercedes in our behalf. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we see then that the the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is this parakletos, the other helper, and he is an intercessor for us. So we've identified some things. He's the spirit of truth. He's a helper. He's an advocate. He's an intercessor. Now let's go to John 16. Jesus tells us a little more about this helper. John 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Jesus was telling the disciples, It's a benefit for you if I leave, because if I do, this gift of the Father will help you in more ways than you can know. Just wait. When he comes, he will come with power. Continuing, verse 8, and when he comes, he will reprove the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this gift of the, of the Father, this promise of the Father, is a reprover or convictor of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Hmm, a convictor, a reprover. So that means if I have sin in my life, if there's something in my life that is wrong, that is not something that God wants there, the Spirit will convict me, bring this conviction into my life that this is wrong. Not only does 
convict me of wrong, but he also he convicts me of righteousness. The need and the desire to be right with God, to be free from sin, to be holy. He convicts me of sin so that I confess it. He convicts me of my need of righteousness, and he shows me where that righteousness is found. It's in Jesus. As I look to him, I can see what real, genuine righteousness is like, and that is where I can be clothed with Christ's righteousness. And he convicts me of judgment. He convicts me that the actions that I have in my life, I will be held accountable for someday. Even if you're not a believer, even if you don't believe in God, you inherently know there's things that are wrong. And somewhere down inside, though you might be getting away with things that you should not be doing, somewhere down inside, you know that you will be accountable for those someday. You might get away with it on this earth. Not a single person on this earth knows what you are doing, but there is a judge that knows what you are doing, and the Holy Spirit is bringing that to your mind. You will face that in the judgment. The judge. Let's look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth. So the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the intercessor, the reprover, the convictor, the, the Holy Spirit is also going to guide us. As I come to the Bible and I'm trying to understand God's will for my life, I can trust that the Holy Spirit is going to guide me. As I surrender my plans, my desires, my dreams, my hopes, my futures, my fears to God, it's, Lord, I don't know what to do next. The Holy Spirit will guide you. He is your guide, and he will guide you into all truth. Now, this is a beautiful promise. As we are trying to understand truth, because Jesus said truth will set us free, we can trust beyond a shadow of a doubt that as we surrender our opinions, our desires, and our sins to God, he will lead us to know what is truth, that we might be free. He will guide you into all truth. The Spirit is a guide. He's also an administrator. In Acts chapter 13, we are told that the Holy Spirit desired to send Paul and Barnabas away as missionaries. And so the leaders brought them together, and they prayed for them, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. And in Acts 13 verse 4, the Bible says, the Spirit sent them to Cyprus. The Spirit sent them. The Spirit is the administrator of missions. He's a guide, and he's also an administrator. Let's continue reading. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. And he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when the Spirit is moving on someone's heart, it's going to cause them to look to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify God. If the Holy Spirit comes with power, there will be glory that will be seen. And what glory is it? It's the glory of Jesus. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore said I that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I want to share with you something that we've just looked at in this passage, and I'm going to put it up on the screen. And it's not at first blatantly obvious, but it will be in just a moment. Now, here is five different verses. Verse 7, 8, 13, 14, excuse me, four different verses. Now, I'm going to dim some of those, and you'll notice the personal pronoun him, he, his, comes to light. How many times? In these four verses, it's mentioned 12 times. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is not just some power. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is a person. Jesus refers to him that way. And if Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a person, I think that we're all safe to do so. Now, let's do a quick review of what we've looked over about the Holy Spirit. We see in John 14, verse 16, that he's our helper, he's our comforter, he's the advocate, he's an intercessor, he is, uh, the helper is the Holy Spirit, he's a teacher, he will come when Jesus leaves, he's a reprover, he's the spirit of truth, he's a guide, he glorifies Jesus, he's our intercessor, and he is the administrator of missions. What a promise! Jesus said, this is the promise of the Father that you're going to have, and when I leave, this is what you get. 
but it's more than that. I want to look at a few other passages that talk about the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 30 talks about the Spirit relates to us and he can even be grieved. He has emotions. 1 Peter 1.21 says that the Spirit inspires, inspired the authors of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7, he's a gift giver. And I'm not talking about Christmas gifts. I'm talking about gifts that enable people to carry out the work of the church. The Spirit inspires individuals to do certain actions. And he talks about these gifts. There's gifts of teaching. There's gifts of help. There's gifts of administration. There's uh, gifts of evangelism. There's gifts of prophecy. There's all these different gifts that the church is given to help it carry out God's work on this earth. He's a gift giver. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the Spirit fellowships with us. It's not just some power that's in the room like air. There is a fellowship that happens with the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, verse 2 tells us that the Spirit was present at creation, and He was a co-creator in the work of creating this earth. Matthew 3, and verse 16 says, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and coming to rest on Jesus... And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The spirit was not only present at creation, but the spirit was present at Jesus' baptism and he came down in bodily form like a dove. Now, you should notice something about this scene. There's Jesus who was just baptized. There's the Holy Spirit in dove form. And there is a voice from heaven, which is the father saying, this is my beloved son. We have seen here in this picture, the three persons of the Godhead. We have the, the Spirit, we have the Son, and we have the Father, all pictured clearly at this scene. There are those that say the Spirit is not a part of the Godhead, but we, and that it's just simply the presence of the Father. This can't be. They're each clearly identified in this scene. In fact, Jesus is led by the Spirit. Matthew 4 verse 4 tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We're told in Acts 5, verse 3, that it is possible for us, just like we lie to God, we can lie to the Holy Spirit, and that has disastrous consequences. Matthew 28, verse 19, we're told to baptize those that choose to uh, bury their lives in Jesus and be resurrected in new life in the name of the heavenly trio, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This was what Jesus told us. So based on what we have looked at together already, as we're examining this subject of an invisible agent that transforms people's lives, we see there's three clear identifying characteristics about the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. Now I didn't say human, I said person. He is his own person. He can be grieved, he can lead, he can inspire. The Holy Spirit is a person. The second point, the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead. He was present at creation. He was present at Jesus' baptism. He's present at every single baptism from now till uh, the second coming. The Spirit is a member of the Godhead. And the third point is we need the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this was a promise of the Father. We need this promise. In the book Acts of the Apostles, the author Ellen White talks about this gift of the Spirit. And I'm going to read to you a little bit that she has to say. Here we go. The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Wherever the need of the Holy Spirit is a matter little thought of, there is seen spiritual drought, spiritual darkness, spiritual declension and death. Whenever minor matters occupy the attention, the divine power which is necessary for the growth and prosperity of the church and which would bring all other blessings in its train is lacking. Though offered in infinite plenitude, since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Why do we not talk of it, 
pray for it and preach concerning it. The Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to those that serve Him than parents to give good gifts to their children for the daily baptism of the Spirit. Every worker should offer his petition to God. Companies of Christian workers should gather together to ask for special help for heavenly wisdom that they may know how to plan and execute wisely. Why should they pray for the Spirit? So that they will feel more power? No, so they can work more powerfully. Especially should they pray that God will baptize his chosen ambassadors and mission fields with a rich measure of his Spirit. The presence of the Spirit with God's workers will give the proclamation of truth a power that not all the honor or glory of the world could give. Wow. We need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. There was a man that came to Jesus one evening to learn about him. He says, Rabbi, here, I know that you're a good teacher. Jesus recognized that this man didn't understand that Jesus was more than just a good teacher. Jesus was the source to all his problems. He was the hope to his every fear. He was the power that he needed when he was weak. Jesus was the chance of a new life. Jesus' blood shed for that man would give him the chance of eternal life. Now, this man needed something more than to recognize Jesus was a good teacher. He needed to be born again. He needed to have different eyes, a different mind, a different heart. And so Jesus told him in John chapter 3, John chapter 3 and verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will, and you hear its sound, but you do not know from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You may not be able to mark the exact time of your conversion. The Spirit has been working on your life over time. But at some point, all of a sudden, your mind realizes, oh, I need Jesus. This world is falling apart. This world is terrible. I don't want what this world has. I want a better place. And as you open the Bible, you read about the better place that Jesus has and the new heart that he wants to give you. The Spirit is working on your heart, causing you to hunger for something better. The Spirit is guiding you to know the truth of life. Jesus, the Word of God. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the disciples are here with Jesus. And while, Acts 1 and verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't go out doing work, don't leave here, but stay here and wait. Wait for one thing. This is what Jesus said. Now, what do you imagine? After Jesus left, what is ringing in their ears? Wait, wait, wait for the promise. What do you think that they were praying for as they met together as believers? What do you think they were asking God for and petitioning his throne? Wait for the promise. Surely they were asking the Father for this gift. Acts 1 verse 4, let's continue. Which he said to, said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. They were to wait for the promise of the Father, and they would receive the Holy Spirit, that they could be baptized with power. Now, Zechariah chapter 4 tells us about the Holy Spirit. Let's go to there together. Zechariah is in the Old Testament, and it's a small little book. It's hard to find while I'm standing up here. Zechariah chapter 4 Zechariah is there, and he's, taught, he's asked a question, what do you see? And he says, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps. And there are two olive trees beside it. So there's this, this candelabra there with seven lamps and two olive trees that are there. And these aren't just any olive trees. They have golden pipes that come from the olive trees, and they come and they go into the lamps. Now, what... What are the purpose of those golden pipes? You can read further there in Zechariah 4 later and see what they are. These golden pipes are carrying 
oil from the olive tree to the lampstands, giving light. Giving light. What is this? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. And he said, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In this Old Testament metaphor, the candlestick, God's church, was only able to give light when it was filled with oil representing the Holy Spirit from the two olive trees that are witnesses. This is another study, but that's the Old and the New Testament. The Word of God is brought to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that causes us to change and we become a light, not of ourselves, but by the oil of the Holy Spirit. No wonder Jesus told them to wait for the promise of the Father. The disciples could not do the work they were given to do until they had received this gift from God, the oil of the Holy Spirit. Now it's critical, absolutely critical, for those at the end of time to understand the work, function, and purpose of the Holy Spirit. Those at the end of time has a, have a special job to do in helping to prepare a people to be ready for Jesus' soon coming. They are to give a message that's to go around the world. In fact, the world is to be lightened with the glory of God. They need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives an end-time message to his church. He talks about there is a wedding that is going to happen. And at this wedding, there's going to be some bridesmaids. There's going to be 10 of them, to be exact. There's going to be five wise and five foolish. The five wise and the five foolish all fall asleep because there's this time of waiting. But at midnight, at the earth's darkest hour, at the time when the brightness of God's glory needs to shine, they are all asleep. But a cry goes out, behold, the bridegroom comes, go you out to meet him. They, they wake up, whoa, whoa, what was that I heard? <gasps> the bridegroom is coming, let's get ready. And they pick up their lamps to notice that they are all out. The five wives, the five wise virgins pull out their extra oil representing the Holy Spirit. Their lives had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. They had waited until their, their, their lives had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Each day the Spirit guided them and led them in their life and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as they came to the end of time, they put this into their lamps and the light shone. But the foolish said, hey, wait a minute. We don't have that experience. We did not take time to prepare. We heard about the truth. We loved the truth, but we did not live it out in our life. We did not experience this power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We weren't walking with him daily, guided by him, working to share his truth to the world. Our light is out. Please share us some oil. But it's not possible for you to take from someone else's experience to make your own. You have to have your own experience with the Holy Spirit. And it's too late. Jesus gives us that warning in advance so that we can be ready at the end of time. I'd like to go with you to the Old Testament. We're going to go to 1 Samuel and look at experience of King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 10. King Saul had been king for but a shirt, or he had not been king yet. He had gone to look for some donkeys of his. The children of Israel had wanted a king, and, and so uh, he had gone out to look for some donkeys. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 1. Now he showed up, Saul showed up at the prophet Samuel's house looking for the donkeys. And so this is what happens. Then Samuel took a flask of oil. Hmm, Oil. Now we already know oil represents the Holy Spirit, causing a light to shine, causing a transforming of the human. He took a flask of oil. What is Samuel going to do with this? He took the oil and he poured it on the head of Saul. And then he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel? He anointed him. And then he told him a few things that were going to happen after that. Symbolically, 
the prophet of God, had anointed, had poured the Holy Spirit onto Saul. He was, in a sense, asking God, God, please fill this man for the work that you have for him to do. And so, we go on down to verse 9. When Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. Another heart. When he turned, now that he was filled with the Spirit of God, he turned, God gave him another heart. When the Holy Spirit comes into a man or a woman, he changes the heart. This is the message of Jesus to to, um, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that a man must be born again. Saul was born again by the Spirit of God. Continuing, and, it, and all these things came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And verse 11, notice this. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to another, one to another, what has come over the son of Kish? Wow, when the Spirit comes into a person, it changes them. It gives them a new heart, and people say, what, who is this? He used to be rude and unkind and mean and vulgar and messy and lazy. And Wow, this is a different person. The message and word and work of God can come forth. Now let's go to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see the disciples carrying out what Jesus said. Wait for the promise of the Father. Stay here. Not many days from now, the Spirit will come upon you and you will receive power before you are to go to all the world. So let's go to Acts chapter 2 together. Here they are. Now, we're told in Acts of the Apostles, page 35, as the disciples waited for the fulfillment of the promise, they humbled their hearts in true repentance and confessed their unbelief. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet man and in their daily intercourse to speak speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. Putting away all differences and all desire for supremacy, they came close together in Christian fellowship. It says here that they prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet man. They confessed their unbelief. This is the work that they were doing. As they were gathered here in Acts chapter 2, waiting for the promise, they were confessing to one another, I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry, sister. Forgive me for what I did. They were confessing their unbelief. Lord, you know our hearts, how we want to believe you, but yet we don't believe you. Help our unbelief. They were confessing their unbelief. They were praying for power to witness for him asking for the Spirit to carry out the work in their life. This is what they were doing. In Luke 11 and verse 13, Jesus told told the disciples this, If you, then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? Wow. I, I imagined then that the disciples thought about that, and they were asking the Father, for the Holy Spirit, because they knew that he wants to give it to them. We're told in the book Evangelism, page 701, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church is looked forward to as in the future. But it is the privilege of the church to have it now. Seek for it, pray for it, believe for it. We must have it, and heaven is waiting to bestow it. It's not some future event, it's now if we ask for it. The Review and Herald, May 5, 1896. The measure of the Holy Spirit we receive will be proportioned to the measure of our desire and the faith exercised for it. And thus, and the use we shall make of it and the light and the knowledge that has been given to us. So God will give us as much spirit as we desire, as we have faith for, and as we're going to live up to the light he has given us. It's up to us. The disciples there, waiting, praying, confessing, 
earnestly seeking God. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit came upon them for a purpose. They had been given a new heart, and now they were told to begin a new work. And they began this speaking in another language. Verse 16. Peter stood up because they were being accused of being drunk. And he lifted his voice and he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, but this was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter is now referring back to a Bible text to prove that what was happening was indeed prophetic. Joel 2. We're told, and in the last days, God it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, shall dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes with great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Peter is quoting from Joel 2, verse 12 and to 13. I want to go to Joel with you now. I was incorrect. He was quoting from Joel 2, verse 28. I want to go with you to verse 12 and 13. That's where I want to go with you now. Yet even now, this is Joel 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Before the Spirit is pulled out, poured out later in Joel, this is the first work. There needs to be a time of prayer, turning to God with confession, rending, rendering not our clothes, but our hearts, breaking our hearts before God. Lord, forgive us of our sins. With weeping and mas- uh, fasting and mourning, with this work in mind, it says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And then verse 23, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early, for your, early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain. In Acts chapter 2, we see the early rain. We see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the early church of God, the new church of God, causing it to go forth with power. And with what power they did, Paul tells us that the gospel was taken to the known world at that time. At the end of time, would you expect the Holy Spirit would come forth with less power to do less of work? No, indeed. At the end of time, the latter rain will be poured out, and it will empower God's church to do a work of magnificent work throughout the entire world. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2 and verse 38. Now when those there heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do you, do you want to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's very simple. Peter gives you the advice right here. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is there something in your life that you need to surrender to God? Is there something in your life that you know should not be there? Do you have a sin in your life you need to give to him? Are you experiencing the righteousness of Jesus in your life right now? Do you need that? Jesus wants to give it to you. Repent and be baptized. Have you been baptized? Have you surrendered your life to him in public baptism? Baptism is something that Jesus did 
as a demonstration of what we need to do. Baptism by immersion. If you have never been baptized by immersion and you recognize that is a biblical mandate and you would like to be baptized, then I would, I would like to ask you just, if you have my number, text me right now and say, I would like to be baptized like Jesus was baptized. You're welcome to go to our website, southbaysda.org, and in the email address there, info at southbaysd.org, send an email and say, I would like to be baptized. Please have Pastor Chris get in touch with me and I will get in touch with you. Jesus has given us this remedy. Repent and be baptized. Baptism represents the mighty work of God, putting to death the old man and coming alive in Jesus, a new person. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now why is it, I have a question for you, why is it? that if God has promised this gift, and it's available to the whole church, why is the church not moving with power of the Spirit right now? What could be holding us back? Why do we not have the power of the Spirit in our life? I wanna go over just a couple more chapters to Acts 5. In Acts chapter 5, we're told about two men. Um, we're told about two, uh, not men, two people, Ananias and Sapphira. They had decided among themselves that they were gonna sell some property and, and keep some of the money and then give the rest, give some of it to the church. But they told the church they were giving them all the money. So they were lying, they were deceiving the church. In effect, we're told they were deceiving the Holy Spirit. Acts 5 verse three. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And so Ananias fell over dead. His wife came in, the same thing happened, she fell over dead. They did not experience the new life, the powerful life that the Spirit had for them because they said one thing and did another. How is it with you in your life? Are you saying one thing and doing another? Have you not experienced the power of the Spirit that he longs to pour out on his church because you're saying one thing and do another, doing another? God longs to fill his church with the power, and yet many of us are saying one thing and doing another. God wants to fill his church with power. This Christmas, my family said they wanted to go up to a cabin up in Teleco Plains. It's called Swan Cabin. You can see it there in the background. Uh, don't let the cabin deceive you, uh, the, the word cabin deceive you, it's, it was pretty uh, treacherous there, no heat inside, no running water, uh, it was so cold there, uh, so we came outside, and as you see here, we stayed warm near the fire. One morning before we left, the girl said, Dad, I really want to go up and see a sunrise, can we do that? And so we made plans that day, and the next morning we got up early, and we went to the very top point in Teleco, Huckleberry Bald. And from there, we sat down and we waited. We eventually saw this come up. Just a glimmer of light off in the distance. Here we are, it's Johanna and Michaela. We're just sitting there waiting, watching. And in the distance, the sun grew brighter and brighter. And I wanna show you this next picture is the exact second. It's the exact moment when the sun popped over the edge and spilt its light across the ground. Here it is, glorious, powerful. We had been waiting. We had been excited. The earth had been dark, and we were looking forward to the brightness that was to come over the edge of the horizon. There was something better soon to come, and we were waiting for it. Revelation 18 verse 1 tells us that the earth is dark, it says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was made bright with its glory. The glory of Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowering his church to give the glory of Jesus to a darkened world. And then a great cry goes out, calling God's people everywhere to surrender their lives to him. We're told in Review and Herald, February 25, 1890, when the church become, churches become living, working churches. The Holy Spirit will be given an answer to their sincere request. Then the windows of heaven will be opened for the showers of the latter rain. So when they become working, then the windows will be opened for the latter rain. 
We're told in Christian service, page 253, the great outpouring of the Spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth with His glory, will not come until we have an enlightened people that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. When we have an entire, wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize that fact by an outpouring of His Spirit without measure. But this will not be why the largest portion of the church are not laborers together with God. We need the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. Many are dying, thousands and millions. There are pandemics sweeping the globe. The world is soon to fall apart. God is longing for a revelation of the character of Jesus to a dark and dying world. He's asking you and me to be a part of that. Are you willing? Is there something in your life that you need to surrender to him? Are you saying one thing but doing another? Have you not surrendered your life to Jesus in public baptism? Jesus is interceding for you. Will you as a church intercede for others? Is there anything holding you back from drawing close together with your Christian and brothers and sisters in unity? I would urge you right now to surrender your life completely, wholly, fully to Him.